morning. As a church for the last three months, we've talked about how following Jesus by nature means to, to live a bold life. It means that because he's so different than we are, that he will lead us in ways we would never go apart from him. And uh, many of those times there'll be some risk at stake and everything, and, and so it requires this bold life. So we've been looking at the book of Acts this entire run because there's no better place to see what it actually looks like to live boldly. We opened at chapter 1 back many weeks back, and, and Jesus, after his resurrection, um, Acts 1 begins. He's still on the planet. His very last words before he ascends to heaven are, are these in Acts 1.8. He says, you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And they understand that doing this will require boldness. They understand that, one, they'll be telling people about a man who is dead that's now alive, but the ones they tell won't get to see this man alive. And they'll be responsible for, for conveying this message that is so stunning and so astounding. And they're aware that they'll be telling people first in Jerusalem, which is where the ones who killed Jesus live, and they're in power. And so they recognize it's going to take this great boldness. Chapter 1 ends, they roll into chapter 2. And, and on this given day, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, like the Holy Spirit of God, to begin to live inside these Christ followers. And by the way, ever since that day, whenever someone begins to believe in Jesus, he sends the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, to live inside of that person as well. And so the Holy Spirit begins to live in them. And in Acts chapter 2, they begin to tell Jerusalem about Jesus. And there's this massive response of people that, to, probably to their shock, that actually believe this and place their faith in Jesus. You roll into chapter 3, they're continuing to convey this message of Jesus. More people believe. You roll into chapter 4, and the very first persecution begins. Very first opposition. Those that crucified Jesus call in Peter and John, and they challenge them. And they, they command them to stop ever talking about Jesus. And Peter says very famously, who do you think we should obey, God or you? And the implication was, he was saying, for John and me, for those of us that follow Jesus, we will obey God. We won't stop. And so the ones that killed Jesus uh, threatened them. They go back to the other, all the other followers of Christ. They gather them together at the end of chapter 4. And, and they pray this singular prayer. And it is for boldness. In the face of this threat that could indeed harm them, or take their life. They pray for boldness. They don't even pray for safety. They just say, God, we understand what we're up against here. Just make us bold. You roll into chapter 5, and they're out telling people about Jesus again. And, and so, uh, again, they're, this time all the apostles are called in. And the ones that killed Jesus are infuriated that they've done this once again. And they decide on the spot that they'll kill all of them. There's one of them that is this highly respected, highly regarded teacher, and he stops them. And he begins to say, hey, guys, wait, wait, wait. Remember, there have been a whole lot of people that have come. A lot of revolutionaries have come out of, out of Jerusalem, out of Judea. Many of them claim to be the Messiah. Many of them got these great followings and everything. But, but each time, the leader, this proclaimed Messiah, in many cases, was killed. Within a matter of time, the followers scattered. Nothing came of it again and again and again. And he names two of them for their memory. He says, remember so-and-so, remember so-and-so. They were both killed. When they were killed, their followers just kind of dissipated. Nothing came of it. And so he says this to them about the apostles. If their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. Think back, guys. It will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men You'll only find yourselves fighting 
against God. You will find this is unstoppable. If this is indeed God, whatever you do, this is unstoppable. So they have the apostles flogged. And fortunately, we don't do that in America these days. So I need to tell you briefly what it means. It means that they took either whips or they took rods. And they beat them badly all up and down their back, maybe up and down the backs of their legs as well. And so they'd be badly beaten and bruised, and they would certainly have many lacerations. They'd be bleeding badly. And I can safely say this. They experienced in that day, out of their boldness that day, they experienced more pain than I've ever experienced in my life for any reason. The entire run of my life, I've never known pain like I'm sure they knew that day. And the same is probably true of you as well. And so they have numerous lacerations and they're bleeding. They don't have any antibiotics. They would stop infection, so there's a lot of risk there. They don't have any Advil in the cabinet to kill some of the pain. And they paid a high, high price. So chapter 5 wraps up with that. And, and then chapter 6 and 7, where we'll be today, it's all about some man named Stephen. And it's unusual out of the book of Acts, there are only 28 chapters. Two entire chapters are all about Stephen. Now, in Acts, there's a lot about Peter, a lot about Paul, but, but two whole chapters which says there has to be something of great significance about what happens with this man, Stephen. It tells something about his characteristics in chapter 6, verse 5. It says he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. To help us understand what that really means, think about what it would mean if you were full of fear. If you were full of fear, you would be under the control of fear, wouldn't you? Well, what this means is he was, he was full of faith. He was under the control of his faith in Jesus. I mean, that's what, that's what he yielded to. He was full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit was in control of him because he yielded to the Spirit moment by moment, day by day. He yielded. He was full of faith, full of Spirit. Verse 8, he was full of grace and power. His life was under the influence and control of this grace of Jesus and the power of Jesus. And then verse 10, he was full of wisdom as well. And so he's out, as the others are, he's out telling people about Jesus still after all that's happened. And there's some opponents that try to talk him down and they can't begin to match his logic and reason and power. And so they finally arrest him and have him brought into the authorities. And so there are people that stand up to accuse him of his crimes and they have to... Uh, tell stories, they have to lie about him in order to get a case built. And so, so the accusers are lying about Stephen, and, and all of a sudden, <laughs> Stephen's sitting in the room, and it says, supernaturally, his face began to glow like an angel. And one by one, every face in the room turns from the accuser and turns and just stares at this man who is aglow with the glory of God. Everything stops and goes silent, and they say, what do you have to say? And all of chapter 7, a long chapter, he, he tells them about the activity of God. He takes them through all the Old Testament, brings them up to Jesus the Messiah. When he begins to talk about Jesus the Messiah, then they become infuriated again. They begin to rip their clothes, which was a sign for them of deep fury and anger. And when they do that, he, he looks up as though he's looking toward the heavens. And he just announces, he says, guys, this is what I'm looking at right now. I see Jesus, the Son of Man, standing in the place of honor at the right hand of God right now. And with that in fury, they, they drag him to the city limits, and they take stones and begin to stone him to death. And his very last words were, Lord, don't hold this against them. And these were the ones that had killed Jesus just probably months before, and they would well remember the, the incredible, 
incredible words of Jesus as he died. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Incredible about those that had crucified him, Jesus was saying. And now here's this follower of Jesus who's become so much like Jesus as they're actually killing him. In, in the pain and torture, and he, he realizes this is his last breath. His last prayer is, Lord, don't hold it against them. Don't hold this sin against them. And he breathes his last. And so he, he paid the high price. He, he understood that following Jesus by continuing to tell others about Jesus, that, that the price could be very, very high. He had the boldness to do it. It cost him his life. But the ripple that began with that single act has been so significant that in this very moment, that ripple laps at the foot of the chair in which you sit in this moment. The ripple that began from this boldness of Stephen 2,000 years ago that has rippled and, and touched other people and out of their boldness that perpetuated the ripple and now for 2,000 years across an ocean, that ripple laps at your feet right now and laps at my feet right now. And, and I want to tell you about the 2,000-year run and bring it to your life best I can. And, and obviously, I'm going to have to compress this because there are thousands upon thousands of lives that have been hit by this ripple of Stephen's act of, of boldness. And so I'm going to compress this as much as I can. But, but this, this was the first ripple effect. It says in Acts 4, verses 4 and 5, so this persecution intensifies, and then in verses 4 and 5 it says, but the believers who were scattered, in other words, they're the ones that they had watched Stephen give it all. The ones who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to Samaria. So there's this immense persecution, so they begin to scatter. Philip, for example, goes to Samaria, begins to tell people there about Jesus, it was part of Jesus' command. Tell people everywhere, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the earth. In Acts eleven nineteen, it picks up the ripple effect of Stephen again. It says, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after, Jesus, after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch of Syria. So his ripple hit them, and in boldness, the ripple continues on. They preach the word of God there. And so now, if you can take a look at what's happened where the good news of Jesus was only in Jerusalem. Now it's spread to Samaria and Phoenicia and Antioch of Syria and Cyprus now because, because ones had been hit by the ripple and it didn't stop with them. They boldly told others and the ripple continued on. And Stephen's effect wasn't only with those. It says at the very end of chapter 7, it says that the ones that stoned Stephen laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then two verses later, it says that Saul was there and he agreed with the stoning of Stephen. And yet Saul, Saul would, would well understand those, those last words of, Lord, don't hold it against them. And he would well understand the, the, the echo of Jesus' words himself. It had to run like ice through his veins that, that someone could become so much like Jesus with this stunning grace. And yet he goes out and begins to persecute and have many, many Christ followers killed until a day that he's on the road to the city of Damascus to have followers of Jesus arrested and most likely killed there as well, that the one of grace, the founder of grace, the author of grace, Jesus meets him. The risen Jesus meets him. Saul had to be thinking back. This is the one that, first he had to think, I'm dead. <laughs> I'm dead. 
And then he probably remembered the words of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And he probably remembered the words of Stephen, Lord, don't hold this against them. And maybe there was this glimmer of hope, and Jesus offers him this complete forgiveness. And, and this Saul then accepts it and understands Jesus is the risen Son of God and accepts it and becomes a follower of Christ. In fact, he's so changed that he's no longer called Saul, he's called Paul. And so, and so now probably by the ripple of Stephen and the effect of that, now Paul now has the ripple hit him, and it doesn't stop with him. And this is what it would cost him, a portion of the cost. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27, to, to obediently follow Jesus and tell others. He says, I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes, Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I've traveled many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from, from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And then he wouldn't be able to write these words, which would eventually be true. He was killed for his bold faith in Jesus. But the ripple that had begun with Stephen hit Paul, and in Paul's boldness, it didn't end there. Because then this news of Jesus went to Turkey and to Greece into Italy and began to change the Mediterranean basin, man. It began to change then because of Paul and his boldness that continued on now. I'm going to skip a number of years for you again. There are thousands upon thousands that God's used to bring the ripple here today. Uh, England and William Tyndale in the 1500s. In the 1500s, by the way, England had first heard about Jesus within a century of Paul's life. So by 150 AD, they'd heard about Jesus. There were some Christians there. There was a long, long run, many times of staleness in that faith. But in the 1500s, William Tyndale believed that every single person that spoke the English language should be able to read a translation, an accurate translation, in their own language. They had some translations, but none of them had gone back to the original Greek and Hebrew. And so we had this passion to go back to the original languages and have the most accurate translation possible so people could understand accurately what God says and have confidence it was accurate. And there was this enormous opposition to him. There were people in power that were afraid out of their minds what would happen. If people actually could read the Word of God and be confident that this is what it really means, he would complete his work. He'd be tied to a stake. He'd be choked to death. His body burned. He wasn't surprised by that. He knew that was, that was the high risk, it was the high likelihood, and yet he did it anyway. So the ripple that began with Stephen ran through William Tyndale's life and his boldness as well. And, and England was now prepared for what would come. Two centuries passed. John Wesley in the 1700s, he's, he's an adult, he's in his mid-30s, he's opening a Bible. England for now 200 years has had Bibles in English that were accurate and they could be confident in. He's reading the Bible. He's reading the book of Romans. As he's reading the book of Romans, he's reading about how, how there can be this relationship with God because of Jesus' death and resurrection and how we have it by 
by the pure grace of God when we place our faith in Jesus. And he reads it, and somehow God impresses upon his heart and soul, this is true. This is really true. And, and so he, he authentically places his faith in the risen Jesus, and on that night, he feels the presence of God. He feels it profoundly, feels the love of God profoundly. And so he, he begins uh, within that current year, I think it was 1736, I believe, thereabouts. He begins in that current, then maybe it's 38. In that current year, he has this passion to tell everyone. He realizes that the churches at the time, they were in the cities and for the rich people and the educated. And so he finds himself going out where the people on the fringes are. For example, he would go out to where the coal miners would come off their shifts. Day and night, he would go out when the shift change would be, whatever time it was, and he would stand there along the pathway and he would start telling about Jesus. And, and it would bring all kinds of response. He would be mobbed at times. He would be beaten at times. He'd be pelted with rocks as he talked. He'd be chased with clubs and cleavers. As he would travel about doing this across England, more than one time, the house he was staying in was, was lit with fire in the hopes of either scaring him or burning him to death. There was, there was huge opposition, but over time, these coal miners and others on the fringes began to listen, and they began to believe it was true. And, and there was this revival that swept England. So much so that over the generation, alcoholism drastically dropped, and prostitution drastically dropped, and work ethic went up, and homes stayed together, and, and the nation at its core was changed. Not by legislation, by transformation from Jesus. And it caught fire so much that it actually leaped across the Atlantic to the eastern seaboard of the U.S. All out of this passion, and again, there were many, many, but Wesley was the key, was the central one out of this passion that, that lit England afire and spread across to the, Gulf, to the uh, eastern seaboard of the U.S. The U.S. had known about Jesus, had been followers of Jesus for three centuries. But they had grown cold and stale in their faith. They are just going through the motions. And these ones who met Jesus through Wesley move across, and the eastern seaboard catches fire as well. And, and so, so, so through John Wesley's life, this, this ripple that began with, Steve, with Stephen, it's Wesley's life, and Wesley's boldness then continues to ripple on. And now it's at the eastern seaboard now. At that time on the eastern seaboard, that's where all the cities were in the U.S. It's, it's hard to put a date on this, but I would say around... 1784 through most of the 1800s, there were some followers of Jesus that had been in the legacy of Wesley, um, and they were called Methodist circuit riders. The U.S. had won their independence. They were a nation now, and there was this great frontier to the west, and many began to, to leave to the frontier. And while there were many people of integrity that that traveled to the frontier to try to make a home for themselves. There were many, many lawless people running from the law there. It was this rough and rugged and, and harsh territory, and it was spiritually a blank slate. It was up for grabs. Right, who would own the frontier? And so the, those that went were so scattered, and, and these Methodist circuit riders realized that unless, unless someone took Jesus there, somebody would never know him. And so, so they, would, they were given an area called the circuit that would range anywhere from 200 to 500 miles in circumference. And their job was to go to everyone in that circumference repeatedly over and over again and tell them about Jesus and where possible you, where you could 
bring a few together in closeness then form churches. And, and the job was hard. There were times that um, they would be beaten, they'd be mocked, and, and on and on, great difficulties for them. But the hardest thing was the circumstances that they would be in. Most of them owned just a horse and saddlebags. All their possessions were in the saddlebags, and they would travel. They were, they were on horseback day and night. And so they traveled in all kinds of weather, in rain and sleet and snow and bitter cold, the most harshest conditions. And their, and their motto, this is what was quoted to them again and again through those many years. No family was too poor, no house too filthy, no town too remote, no people too uneducated to receive the good news. But in those harsh circumstances, I, I help, maybe this will help you understand, the life expectancy at the time wasn't high, mostly because of infant death. But if a man lived to be 20 years of age, he could expect to live to be 60 years of age. If he lived to 20, he expected to live to be 60. Half of the Methodist circuit riders were dead by 33. Just the brutal, brutal conditions. But the reality was that the frontier became Jesus' territory. It became the thread that made this a Christian nation in that season, that time, and what they did. And so the ripple that began with Stephen ran through the circuit riders in their boldness as well. Now, the journey I've taken us on now for probably everyone in this room is part of your story. It's part of the story of how this ripple of this one bold act has gotten to the room today. But at this point, I want to, I want to divert, and, and I want to tell you very briefly where the ripple goes for my story in hopes that you'll think about your story and think about who God used in, in the ripple who is bold to put you where you are today if you're a follower of Jesus. Circuit riders, uh, the frontier became Jesus' territory. A direct influence of them in Abilene, Texas in 1881, there was a Methodist church founded, 1881. Exactly 100 years later, Marie and I moved to Abilene, Texas. We're building a house south of Abilene. Marie is going around to some shops in town to build this house, and she's in this place that makes and sells marble, and she's talking to the owner about their marble versus the competitor's marble, and the owner's a lady named Joy Davis, and in the conversation, Joy Davis boldly invites Marie to her church. We were a bit surprised about that because there were other competitors, and Joy didn't know Marie at all, didn't know Marie's position about Christ or religion or sharing religion, and, and there was some risk that she took that Marie might go to a competitor. She had no idea, but she just boldly and very lovingly, very compellingly invited my, my wife Marie. So Marie comes home, and she says, I met this lady. She invited me to church, and there was something about the way she did it. I think we should go to the church. And I thought, okay, let's go. Where is it? So she tells me it's 30 minutes from the house we're building. And I said, you know, there are at least 20 or 30 churches closer. Let's just go to one of them. And she said, well, something about the lady. And I said, okay, we'll drive there once. So because of the boldness of Joy Davis, we drive to this church. And that day there's the boldness of someone else that tucks us back a second time. We get there the second time, the second Sunday. And second Sunday we, we meet a man named Dennis Townsend and his wife Andy. And we begin to get to know them and we are convinced they are certifiably crazy. It was obvious from the first moment, and it never was curtailed. They believed Jesus was alive and talked to them. 
and, and they believed as he would guide their life, they did what he said. And we watched them read scripture, and whatever it said, they just did. Some of this stuff was so absurd, we thought, so it seemed. And many people made fun of them, and many people wrote them off, but there was something compelling about this. Maybe it's a train wreck about to happen, but so we stayed there. We watched and watched and watched and, and began to realize that as uh, not just they would follow Scripture, they would follow the leading of Jesus to them. They did some things that, that seemed so out there, and yet God would take it and do things that it had to be God. This, this bold living for Jesus, we would see the hand of God at work. It had to be God. And they were open about Jesus all the time. And, and the day came that that ripple that had begun with Stephen ran through not only Joy Davis, but this Andy Townsend, and it hit us full force. Now, Joy Davis and Dennis and Andy, they would, they would never put themselves in the company of Stephen and Paul and uh, Tyndale and John Wesley and the circuit riders, but Marie and I would. We understand that we're not called to be persecuted. We're called to be faithful and tell people about Jesus in our circumstance, whatever that is, whatever the risk is. And for us, we understood with joy there was some risk there. Marie talked to a jillion store owners about all kinds of product and everything. This was the only one that invited her. We were aware there was some there was some boldness there. It didn't keep her from inviting us, thank God. Dennis and Andy, we recognize the boldness there that people might think you're crazy. People might avoid you. We understood that. Thank God. The ripple didn't stop at the feet of Joy Davis and Dennis and Andy Townsend. Thank God it ran through them and their boldness because Marie and I have had our lives and our eternal addresses changed because of that. Who has God used in your life? If you're a follower of Jesus, who has who he used in your life for the ripple of Stephen to run through someone else as they just boldly followed Jesus and boldly talked about Jesus? Maybe it was parents. Maybe it was someone volunteering in a church. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was a friend. Who was it in your life that, that the ripple of this boldness that started 2,000 years ago rippled to their life and didn't stop at their feet? It rippled right through them in their boldness. Because of that, you know Jesus. 2,000 years in this very morning, the ripple laps at my feet and your feet. So what do we do? Uh, part of it's easy. This is Easter season. Steve talked about this to tell people about Jesus. It's, it's a pretty easy stretch to invite someone to Easter services. A couple of friends of mine I'm going to invite and... I, I'll tell them about Jesus again. They don't care about that. I'll, and so my, my hook is going to be, it's a national holiday. Now, you go to church on Easter. Come on, come on, because I know if they get here, there's a chance. There's a chance. And so inviting people to Easter, that's a, and I, I don't want to write it off. There's some boldness required that, as there was with Joy Davis. Someone might not like you. They might avoid you. There's some boldness required. I don't want to diminish that. But Jesus says... You're my witnesses. Tell people about me. It's, it's an easy. You got this invite card in your program, and there's a stack on the right-hand side of the kiosk as you go out. I, if I were you, I would pick up a handful, and I would invite like crazy. I'd be a fool inviting people. 
I should have told the first service this. Uh, I did it um, on an obscure February three plus years ago. I, I did a message. At the end of the message, there were more people that trusted Jesus that day than any time in 19 years on an obscure day. And God has prompted me to take that message and adapt it to Easter, and, and that's what we'll have on Easter Sunday. And who knows what God might do? I invite like crazy. It's like Joy Davis did. And then uh, the call for us and right now, this day and the days that follow, do like Dennis and Andy did. Follow Jesus with abandon. Whatever Scripture says, let's just do it. Whatever the Spirit says, let's just do it. Let's talk openly about it. Let's, let's take the risk of looking like a fool. And the odds are there'll be some that think you are. They'll write you off. Let's take the risk. Let's do it. Because maybe there'll be someone just fool enough to hang around and watch you like Marie and me. And maybe the ripple will go from Stephen through you. And their life and their eternity will change. We're going to take, in just a moment, we're going to take some time and we're going to pray that we be bold. But I have to pause and, and say that uh, 2017, we have brothers and sisters around the planet who are bold. They will be bold. And for many of them, the outcome will be that of Stephen. Last year, 90,000 brothers and sisters died only because they were bold. If they hadn't been bold, they'd still be alive today, but they were bold. And the rate is the same now, which means in this one hour in which we worship, 10 of them will die because they were bold. And next hour, 10 more, and next 10 more, and every hour this year, 10 will die. And so I want us to take a few moments. Here, I'll set this up, but in just a moment, I want us to take just a few moments and, and have some time to pray for them. I, I've got a map of the 10 countries where the persecution is heaviest. And, and here's the deal. You have to hear this if you know anything about them in these countries. They don't want our sympathy. They want us to pray that they'll be bold. Right? They're the people of Acts 4. They want us to pray they'll be bold. Today and tomorrow and the next and as many days as they get. So as we pray, pray that for them. Pray they won't they won't shy away. Pray they'll be bullets, what they want. And then secondary prayer, then pray for God to protect them as well. So we're going to have a moment to pray for them. And after that, uh, I'll shift gears briefly for us. And, and we'll have a few moments as the church then to pray for us in the Bay Area. And the prayers then will be that, that we will be bold. This is our time. This is our season. It doesn't matter what the cost is for us. We're, just, we're called to be bold in our time, in our place, our season. So bow your heads for a moment. This is for our brothers and sisters that are, have much higher risk than we do. Um, Father, the prayers you're about to hear will be, first of all, that they be bold. That they be bold. Church, pray. And if you want to open your eyes and look at the countries and pray for those, pray. And then I'll transfer, shift over in a few moments for us to the Bay Area.
Father, there are a lot of, of truly brothers and sisters that we'll spend eternity with that have um, a much riskier time than we do. And so we pray you would make them bold. Make them bold. That the ripple of Stephen will continue through their lives as well. And then, Father, for us here in the Bay Area, uh, this, is, this is our calling here. This is our time. This is our space. And yes, our risk is much different. Uh, but yet, we're called to be bold in our circumstances. And so, Father, now you'll hear the silent and lift up prayers of your church. For your church to be so bold in this time season. So the ripple of the boldness of Stephen won't stop at our feet, but will flow through us upon the lives of others. 